0: Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Reem, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today, I'm joined by Amity Schlaes, chair of the board at the Kelvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Amity has led many of the Coolidge Foundation's initiatives, including essay contests for high school students and the current year-long centennial celebration of Coolidge's presidency. Amity is also a best-selling author of books on The Great Depression, Kelvin Coolidge, and The Great Society. We're gonna hear from Amity about her work with the Coolidge Foundation, her extensive journalism and writing career, and some of the lessons she, she has shared with TFAS students and alumni As a guest lecturer. Amity, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat. Happy. Glad to have you here. Well, let me begin by asking you what sparked your interest in 20th century economic and political history after first writing a book about Germany.
1: When I worked as a young person, I worked at the Wall Street Journal and uh, mysterious things happened. Bells went off when a company bought part of another company There were all these institutions journalists referred to, the NBER, the NLRB, the SEC. And when I went back and looked, I found these institutions were created in the past. Well, what were they and what were their purposes? We sort of, you know, Wall Street is a cavernous area with skyscrapers. So these institutions were like the skyscrapers of the mind that shaped the journal. And I I began to be curious
0: well, you spoke this summer to our students about uh, this act of rebellion, as you called it, that prompted you to write a book. I think your your book, The Forgotten Man. How was how it an act of rebellion?
1: Well, rebellion is very important, but one does have to channel it against what is one rebelling and to what end. Uh, it, I know that you as an undergraduate, Roger, struggled with the Great Depression and I struggled with it, not too. Not with depression. Not, not with, with the sad Great depression. depression yes. de- the Great Depression. And then it's multi-causal. And and it's kind of mystified by professors, frankly. So you're not clever enough to understand the Great Depression unless you have a Princeton PhD. And for all the respect we have for PhDs, economics isn't that hard. Uh, and I kind of got this feeling from my leadership at the journal that, that the great depression was a no go zone for me because, well, I didn't have the PhD in that area. And that kind of bugged me Mm -hmm. so that it was like catnip. I was like, well, I'm going to try and figure this out. Why was it more than 10% of Americans were unemployed for a decade? Well, why was that? It can't all be monetary math. And even the monetary math is not that hard. It's more political error in the monetary area when you look at the Great Depression. So, but but it was it was surely rebellion. I wanted to show others that I could treat this important economic period seriously and add some value.
0: And uh, obviously, you did very deep research on that era, and that became part of your book, The Forgotten Man. Uh, could you talk a little bit about? And kind of what you found in terms of what caused this, not, not only what caused the Great Depression, but what led it to continue for as long as it did.
1: There are two things I'd like to say. One is yeah. that I had an advantage, which is the searchability of the PDF. So imagine historians in the 70s and 80s, even 90s, getting microfiche on spools and rolling it to find an individual article. When we got through ProQuest, the searchability of the PDF, it gave us a great advantage, It newer workers, to really have a look at the period. Uh, you know, I practically read the entire newspaper, New York Times, for the decade. At night, it got to be a habit. Uh, I became addicted to reading primary sources, and that certainly gave me confidence and, more importantly, knowledge. Uh, what I discovered was, uh, one, the government made it worse. So you say it in one sentence, the government made it worse. What did it make worse? It made the great depression worse. The government made the great depression worse. And actually there were figures from the period who said that where I'm just publishing with AIER, the American Institute of Economic yeah. Research, a book of new deal rebels, new deal dissidents who said, wait a minute, this is wrong. One of the most compelling is Benjamin Anderson. Who sure. was read, I'm sure by Rothbard. Um, it, someone Roger has read. He, uh." Put it very simply, and and Anderson did. He said the government, the, the the trouble in the preceding years, i.e., the Great Depression, was caused by the government playing God. And when playing God did not work, government played God more vigorously. I like that line very much. Government played God. Government played God more vigorously. That is intervention which does not suffice to get the result one seeks, mandates more intervention, which is a questionable logic.
0: Yeah, in fact, what I recall from Rothbard's book, uh, America's Great Depression, was the pressure the Hoover administration was putting on business to keep wages up at a time, which, which at a time when they probably should have been cutting wages to avoid the layoffs that took place in the unemployment and then you write a lot about that and about the Roosevelt administration putting in just so many regulations that, I mean, that you tell the stories of some people that said, no, this is this is not right. We're going to fight it, like the Schechter family that went to the Supreme Court. Uh, that's what I think makes the book so fascinating, that research you did finding the, the forgotten men and women who had to face this tremendous government mandates Uh These are stories you uncovered in that research and going through the PDFs. Oh, certainly,
1: certainly. But uh, the, the labor story is just common sense. You're an employer. You don't have much profit this year. Maybe you're losing money. It's a loss. It's a red year. What do you do with your employees? Do you raise their wages? Well, if you do, and that's what President Hoover told companies to do, then you can employ fewer people because you don't have the money. Well, you'd what would you rather do? Again, common sense. You'd rather cut their wages. It's not a very nice thing to do to people. But you'd rather do it so that you could keep them, so you don't have the turnover, so that you are humane. What, what came in the late 20s was a new trend, a fad that said push wages up. And this came from the government. Uh, and then what? The, the the worker will have more money and he'll buy buy back the car in, in Henry Ford language. He'll shop and that will get the economy going. Well, maybe, uh, but there are other ways to get the economy going. And one of the results of that policy under Hoover and of course under Roosevelt, the high wage policy was much stiffer unemployment. So so so. It was a real tragedy. People had no job at all. We had high wages, patted ourselves on the back. In fact, the wages of the period, as Leo Hanyan has shown, um, the scholar, were anomalously high. That is so tragic. In a depression to have high wages, why? Uh, We know why. It was political. But but that meant also the high unemployment.
0: Well, you also, well, there's this myth out there that's commonly taught. I think in schools that so many people have that the depression was ended by world war two. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, is, do we credit <laughs> this war? I mean, uh, for ending the great depression or, or Spending, was it the did depression continue throughout the war?
1: The real question about the great depression is not whether world war two ended it. It's why did that depression last all the way to that war? So you go from 29 To 1939, 40, when we could say we had recovery. Uh, That's way too long. What a massive spending project like World War II, when the share of the government in the economy went over 20, 30%, does is like giving someone, um, I don't know, a super shot, a -hmm. narcotic shot, maybe heroin instead of tea. And of course, the government, uh, the economy is happy when it's busy, but it's not a peacetime. Basis For an economy to be perpetually managing through little injections. It's kind of a happy doctor. The government is happy doctor. Uh, And we still do that Uh, little stimuli here and there, bigger stimuli, massive stimuli. It works in the short run. After World War Two, there was a consensus that the New Deal hadn't worked. There was a morning after, of course, after the spending of World War Two. You can see that, for example, in the film, the best years of our lives, Mm -hmm. where they all come home wondering whether they'll get a job. Uh, and there was that feeling people thought, well, maybe a depression will ensue because we don't have the massive spending of the war. It didn't. And in part, because America, both parties realized that they didn't want to repeat the new deal of the 1930s. What is evidence of that in the legislation? Well, one was the amendment to restrict presidencies to two consecutive terms. Another was the Taft-Hartley law, which Truman vetoed, but his veto was overridden. That law basically um, neutered the Wagner Act, uh, the big labor powerful unions. labor law from the '30s. It said um, it created right to work; it codified, to be precise, right to work states. States can opt out of strictures from unionization, and and that enabled a wonderful natural experiment whereby Americans saw the incontrovertible now evidence that less unionized. Fl- less unionized places tend to create more jobs. Uh, and in my great society book, I have that chart. Uh, but it's sad. We have an emotional connection to unions, but they don't tend to promote the general welfare.
0: Well, uh, one of the things you learn about in, in most history courses is the impact going back to the Hoover period of the Smoot-Hawley tariff. When did that the impact of those high tariffs. And did that end after world war two, and do we continue actually, to have those high tariffs? It,
1: uh, yes. We, we, after world war two, we said we want free trade, more free trade. Yeah. We're very selective and inconsistent about that, but we tended after, you know, uh, Doug Irwin at yeah. Dartmouth has looked into that. I don't think the smooth Hawley tariff caused the great depression. It was a nasty thing to do. Why? It made goods more expensive here And worse yet, it antagonized fragile democracies. What if we said to Ukraine today, and we're going to way increase tariffs on the only things you produce. We're going to dramatically increase. Uh, That's what we did to Germany. That's what we did to other countries. They had one thing they exported, a certain kind of typewriter, a certain kind of car. And we made... We deprived them of the U.S. market. That's particularly evil because we were telling these countries who had significant debt remaining from World War One, the only way you can pay your debt is if you sell. Mm-hmm. And then we said, "But not to us." Mm-hmm. And there were ma- there were uh, massive retaliations by European governments for when we imposed Smoot-Hawley. I would say Smoot-Hawley contributed to the instability in Europe and strengthened Mussolini. Mm-hmm. So. it... it that that's the most interesting part. It's not a felicitous move in a downturn uh, to, to increase taxes on, on – uh, I mean, goods would have been cheaper, right, yeah. for people who didn't have enough, mo- enough money. Uh, it was sort of more of a political move. And, and, and the sad thing was Hoover knew that. Hoover was at Versailles. He knew what was wrong with the treaties at the end of World War I and that we had sabotaged particularly Germany's recovery through an overly punitive treaty. Mm-hmm. The, the stab in the back, as Germans put it, um, and been sort of strong-armed by the French into doing that. He knew all that, and yet he went along because it was politics. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, how do historians now view someone who's dear to your heart and one of my favorite presidents, Calvin Coolidge? Uh, you chair the Coolidge Foundation. This is a big year for you, the centennial of his presidency. Uh, Have historians tried to revise the history of the 20s and try to blame Coolidge in some way for what came after his presidency under Hoover and Roosevelt? Because it was a a great period for this country, the Coolidge presidency.
1: In so many ways. Yeah, I think people don't get Coolidge. First of all, it's not so much that that the books diss Coolidge, though they do occasionally. It's that he's Scarcely taught Coolidge served between 23 and 29 and he presided over and enabled, I won't say fostered because that's too aggressive a verb, enabled, caused to have created the environment in which business could thrive. Um, the results were stupendous. Americans got jobs. Americans built skills productivity is a, is a rather bland concept. What is that productivity? But what, what that translated to productivity gains in that period was and higher
0: wages Saturday workers. off yeah. Saturday. Yeah. So just
1: think of Coolidge as the president who secured us Saturday. It
0: wasn't labor unions. It wasn't labor unions. It was productivity unions. gains. It was gains.
1: productivity gains. So it's always a, a trade off there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, we became the America. We are at the library of Congress. We'll talk about Charles Lindbergh in that period, Suddenly we could fly, we had cars, we were electrifying. Um, The New Dealers, in their progressive push on electricity, were playing catch-up to the market, which was already basically doing what the New Deal claimed it would do, which is provide electricity to poor people. So so the the decade is vilified, Coolidge is forgotten, or randomly vilified. I noticed Robert Schiller, who's a great economist at, at Yale, sort of said, Kind of Coolidge's fault in in a sort of drive-by TV commentary. I don't think Professor Schiller thought that one through. It was The Depression was not Coolidge's fault. And um, lately, Roger, there's been a new, you know, in the current um, environment uh, of social justice, there's been a new assault on Coolidge. Again, kind of under-informed by the fact that nobody ever learned about Coolidge in high school anymore. Um, what that assault is, they say, well, Coolidge was part of a bigoted era. They suggest, with no evidence to speak of, that Coolidge was a big bigot. Maybe um, No, he was a creature of his era. And our bigotry uh, led to prejudice around the world. There, there are isolated ways in which that is so. For example, the American eugenics movement, favored largely by progressives, by the way, right. um, was re- their work was read in Germany by... Nazis or people who became Nazis, um, our habit of sterilizing people, the Nazis knew about that. It was a terrible habit. It was wrong. Um, but to smear leaders in the twenties, particularly national leaders about, um, the bigotry and murder in Germany or is, is a real big stretch. And the, I suspect, um, One thing on people's mind is there's a new Ken Burns documentary. It's very long. um, Almost, I think it's 390 minutes. That's a lot of investment from, from donors and by Mr. Burns, who's a spectacular documentarian. I made this thing called um, the U S and the Holocaust and the Holocaust part is useful. Americans have forgotten what happened in Europe in the Holocaust. Um, but the American part kind of says it's, this is our fault because we restricted immigration. We did restrict immigration in the twenties, also in the thirties. Um, but nobody was, was, uh, you know, planning to abet any Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what the Burns does that seems to me a misrepresentation involving the manipulation of history and time says the 1920s immigration law, in particular, the Johnson Reed Act of 1924 enabled the Nazis. That's that's just crazy. Um, uh, and there's a suggestion the U.S. didn't do enough to help Europe European citizens, to help Poland, to help your Jews. Well, we actually did something. We chose to do the hardest thing, which is to prosecute a war at great cost, losing hundreds of thousands of people uh, You know, whose families right. know about this. You've seen the veterans who will remain at D-Day. It's not the choice some people would make to stop murder in Europe, but it is a very traditional choice and probably the only realistic choice in the case of Hitler. We couldn't just send the Red Cross to Auschwitz in cabs. or buses to rescue people uh, that was behind the lines, deep behind the lines of the war. Uh, We couldn't even, you know, one of the things Burns um, invites people to speculate on is a counterfactual. Should we have bombed Auschwitz? Well, uh, we would, first of all, we would have killed the prisoners. Right. Second of all, we, we didn't, necessarily have that capacity that that reach until very late in terms of air power but it, it, the whole discussion in this Burns show which is important because it's being taught in schools mm-hmm. um is this was somehow our fault it it, it shames americans it, it we weren't the, the ones to be shamed in world war ii we were for better or for worse the rescuers with britain
0: and you've written about um uh in the City Journal about this documentary, haven't you?
1: Yeah, well yeah. I kinda got going because I, I I did speak with some other presidential scholars and there there's blame for Coolidge this 1924 law which by the way he, his veto would have been overridden had he vetoed it Coolidge did support immigration restriction he was not a racist mm-hmm. you don't have, if you support immigration restriction that does not mean you have to be a racist which is another thing that tends to be suggested nowadays yeah. he was not he thought america needed a pause uh, he disliked the immigration law in per, a particular part of it the japanese exclusion And he said, Japan will be angry, foreign policy. Well, Japan was, because Japan lost face, to use an old term, when we wrote the Japanese exclusion. He said, I would veto that if it were an isolated piece of legislation. But anyway, actually, Coolidge comes off fairly well compared to his successor, Herbert Hoover, whom Burns um, kind of inflates the numbers and says, well, we deported large numbers. The, The word million is of Mexicans. It's not clear that and and the I think a student would take away the U the federal government was the actor there. It wasn't. It was local governments. The feds did some things with Mexicans or Mexican Americans and many went back, some voluntarily. But it was no more nowhere near the massive wrong that is the the treatment of Mexicans and Mexican Americans um in the early thirties that Burns suggests, which is a pity. Mm-hmm. His movie on who Huey Long is the best ever. I recommend it. I just rewatched it about populism and there's footage of Huey Long. You see nowhere else. Cause in our, at our age, we just read about Huey Long. Maybe we saw one TV show once and and right. Huey Long was a good speaker. It just, his ideas were wrong. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you have a big conference this month on Calvin Coolidge at the library of Congress I also had the opportunity to get a, an advanced view of your new documentary on Coolidge, which is not 390 minutes, but uh, I guess about 75 minutes. It's it's excellent, excellent documentary you've put together on Kelvin Coolidge. And uh, are you going to be able to get that into schools, you think? Well, and, we
1: hope so. If you're a yeah. school— um, please contact the Coolidge Foundation and we will get you one. We also have a short version of 30, the version you saw, I believe, 64 mm-hmm. minutes. Okay. Uh, that's an awkward length for a class. And we just completed a half-hour version for classrooms. Uh, Great, And Wonderful. we have two versions, actually, of the shorter uh, of, abridgment. One abridgment is for New England. So there's an emphasis on Coolidge's roots in Vermont and his His Massachusetts roots because he was the best of New England. He was uh, not, he was a swamp Coolidge. He was not high society. Because remember, in the past, well, Vermont was the West. (laughs) Vermont was the wild, (laughs) Vermont was where you went from Boston if you didn't have any land. And that was Coolidge's branch. Uh, um, But we also have a policy version that uh, it doesn't have a name yet, but we call it Coolidge Policy for classrooms about uh, that emphasizes more Coolidge's policies which were amazing he was also an amazing speaker he has a a, a churchgoers and clergy will recognize he has an extremely homiletic way of talking he has short sentences his natural length is eight minutes uh like a sermon or 12 minutes Mm -hmm. uh and he I, i i think he's one of the best writers i've ever encountered um the uh Author Craig Fairman, who will be at this conference, wrote a book called, he's an author, but he wrote a book called Author-in-Chief about presidential authorial personalities and, and opus. And he praises Coolidge's writing, men do not make laws, they do but discover them. Yeah, uh, amended. Just, That's it, right. you could, uh, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, was the Boston anytime. police
0: strike. And,
1: and that was actually a telegram. I think it actually, that yeah. sentence is interesting because it's got some weird grammar. The prepositions are off. There is no right to strike against the public safety comma by anybody anywhere, anytime. Well, you stop and you say by of, but, but, he, 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 even when Coolidge has his own idiosyncratic syntax, it reflects the tension of the moment. Mm-hmm. And so there were stops, comma. You know the old telegraph language. You you couldn't put a comma. You had to write comma. Uh, that's a beautiful line. As is his speech. Um, give administration a chance to catch up with legislation.
0: (laughs) That's forgotten today.
1: That's a very nice one. He, he started out, um, a Republican, which means a a progressive. Uh, he was in the party of Theodore Roosevelt, but Coolidge came to see that progressives wanted too many laws too fast. He wrote to his father, it's better to kill a bad law, much more important than to pass a good one. Mm -hmm. Very interesting line. Um, And remember, the the political cycle in Massachusetts at that time was short. The governor had to be elected, reelected every year. So the urge to act is great. And Coolidge was the opposite. He was a refrainer. So, by the way, was Harding. If you go back and look at Harding's uh, language and speeches, he said, don't experiment. We have a proven system. So, so I like these forgotten presidents. They, they, they uh, reward us for giving them some time. Warren Harding III is one of the speakers at the Coolidge conference.
0: Wonderful. And wonderful. he's
1: not direct. Uh, yeah. he's, uh, he's a distinguished orthopedist, uh, but he's going to talk about what Harding did when he came into office in the early twenties.
0: Well, uh, let me ask you a little bit about what Coolidge did. I know he was very concerned about government spending and the budget. And uh, focused a lot of attention there. He felt that government needed to be within a budget and be small and uh, not overtax, and that this would lead to economic growth in the economy. Uh, But what specifically did he do during his presidency to spur economic growth? Was he he successful in, in taming the appetites of Congress that likes to spend, spend, spend?
1: Well, we have a cartoon of that at the office of Coolidge at his desk and all the men leaning over him saying spend. Uh, (laughs) uh, He said no. He practiced saying no and he did. Coolidge was a maestro of the pocket veto, which is the veto where uh, if a law passes just before vacation, you just do nothing about it. That was his style, the Mm -hmm. style of the appearance of inactivity. And then he would just let it die. And that pocket veto um, is wonderful because you don't, it's hard to override. They have to, the lawmakers have to write a darn new law again and get it passed. Um, and he didn't even have a veto message for them. He, they just died. He had twin lion cubs and he named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. That's because, of course, to to, to reinforce his commitment to budgeting simultaneous to tax cuts, he wasn't quite a modern supply sider. I think it's important for all of us to remember that they were operating this in this period under a gold standard. And if a government so – or imagine today a good corollary is a state government. What happens to a state when it overspends? Its bond rating goes down. Right. Rel, so the U.S. government was like a state in the U.S. now – And if it overspent, its bond rating would go down. And what that meant was gold would flow out. Your other governments would come and take gold from our treasury and force a recession on us because gold was the monetary base. We don't have quite that system now. We act, uh, we think, with perpetual impunity because we're the currency of reserve. But that can change. Britain used to be the sovereign, you know, the pound sterling was the currency of reserve until around Coolidge's time. So, so, um, Coolidge had a necessity, which was uh, a valuable tool for him to budget, to cut. He actually, uh, I think of him more as a governor who happens to be serving as president and you'll understand it better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He actually left office with the budget lower than when he came in, uh, not per capita, not d- lower. Yeah. How do you do that with the economy growing 4% and the population increasing? So that's more like a governor. You think of um, Mitch Daniels or, uh, you know, try, fighting very hard to lower Indiana's budget or at least restrain growth. That That's the way Coolidge saw it. And because of the international monetary system, that's the way it was at the point. But he also understood that consumption is not the story. So nowadays – The government uh, has a a modern version of the under-consumption theory, and it says, well, consumers aren't buying enough. You hear it every day on television. Consumption is – seven; consumers are 70% of the economy. That's a little crazy. He was interested in the supply side. He said, what's going to make producers produce better so we can get Saturday off? And what's going to unfetter them to come up with things? Supply does create its own demand. And he did that through the tax cuts – which he led and which were dramatic. It, it, Coolidge's tax cuts weren't snap your finger overnight, we have a 25% rate. He had plenty of opposition, including with his own party, which was splintering. But he did cut taxes and eventually, after uh, several campaigns, got the top marginal rate down to 25%, which is lower than Ronald Reagan's from the 50s, the 70s uh, in the war, World War One tremendous feat, requiring tremendous amounts of political capital. So he, I think one reason Coolidge was able to do that was he had a a fantastic ally in Andrew Mellon, the treasury secretary, but also because he never squandered political capital. He lived virtuously, not because he always wanted to be virtuous. Nobody knows whether he wanted that, but because he didn't want to squander political capital. The Bushes talk about that too. President Bush, Harding who was a wonderful man to me, resembling President Clinton a bit, squandered political capital because of his private life and his his personnel errors got in the way of his political policy objectives.
0: Well, I, I spoke with Mitch Daniels recently on this podcast, and it was released in mid February. Uh, and and since you mentioned him uh, being someone who was like Coolidge like in his governorship. What is the possible? I mean, we have such serious financial issues we face as a country chronic runaway deficits, spending, national debt, uh, inflation now. Is there any. How, how is it possible to elect another person like a Calvin Coolidge to the White House to try well, to.
1: The first thing to do, which fast does, yeah. is educate young people about this so they know what to vote for. Education does not happen in campaign commercials. No. You have to educate before campaign commercials, and people have to come to their own opinion. You can't even educate by cheerleading. We all believe this. No. People have to are autonomous. They have to come to their own view over time, sometimes 10 or 15 years. Uh, two, usually in the end— events events uh, work together, mm-hmm. events conspire crisis, to cause a crisis. Uh, what are possible crises? Not that one would wish them the dollar be challenged by a non-dollar. There's no reason that can't happen. Um, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, our dollars are worthless. So we've got to do something as in the case of Mrs. Thatcher in Britain, she would never, Margaret Thatcher would never have been elected had Britain not gone through such a rough time prior and people had had enough with militant labor unions. I feel in a, this show we're being a little hard on the unions. I I like what some things unions do. They give value to America. For example, when they organize insurance mm-hmm. and they're a large actuarial pool and they make it cheaper, they tend to discourage litigation of the, uh, of the lottery variety if you lose, uh, if you're hurt. There's a chart that's at work that says what you get. Um, they support workers in rough times. They look out for workers' interests. I'm just talking here when I criticize um, unions about the the anti-worker effects of um, belligerent unionism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Well, let me ask you about the Coolidge Foundation since you talked about the importance of education of young people and it doesn't happen in campaigns. Uh, You've got a remarkable program uh, with high schools and high school students. Could you talk about that?
1: Well, it's no more remarkable than your programs, but what we do something similar to TFAS, we have a scholarship to honor Coolidge. The scholarship is a full ride to any college the student gets into. So that's a large investment. We pay the entire tuition and costs of that student.
0: No matter where they go,
1: no matter where they go. And um, that, High schoolers compete for that scholarship. Uh, currently, we have, um, I believe, uh, twenty thousand students registered to apply for four scholarships. To give you an idea, but the wow. scholarship itself, um, it's bigger than that. We hope the scholarship. It's and it's an academic merit scholarship. And in a period when merit uh, is being questioned, we don't question merit. We do believe numbers tell something. We're a, a student who has five fives on the AP ought to be real proud. And uh, we look, uh, it's an—it's it, like a Rhodes in that way. But everyone who applies must write several essays about Coolidge policy. So that's our way of introducing Coolidge to, to serious students. You know who you are, thoughtful students. You don't have to marry Coolidge or become a Coolidgeite. We have uh, students who've won the Coolidge who probably wouldn't vote for Coolidge and might not vote for anyone like him today that bothers us not at all this is not a political choice our goal is just to acquaint people who are thinking uh, th- think who are thinking a lot uh, particularly um, they tend to be science candidates with Coolidge so they can consider him later Coolidge was a great supporter of innovation um, the top hundred of the candidates more or less um, uh, of these, it ends up being three or 4,000 who complete the application, um, uh, become Coolidge senators, which is a summer program. And you come and learn about Coolidge again, you don't have to marry him yeah. it, or become a Coolidge. I, we would never ask that of an autonomous young person. We just uh, think they like to, they get to know each other. And, uh, They're friends and they get to know Calvin Coolidge. And now we have a most beautiful setting in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, which is the president's birthplace, maintained by the state of Vermont. And Senator Welch will be at this conference, the new senator from Vermont. Um, And we're blessed with that and to have the state of Vermont as a partner. So I'm sure TFAS has taken students up there. It's isolated and beautiful. And there are a lot of interesting colleges, by the way, for young people. Williams is nearby, UVM is nearby. Amherst, Coolidge's College is nearby, Dortmund is nearby. Uh, there's, uh, you know, and um, so many places to visit if, if families are contemplating a sort of America trip in the look at colleges period, the notch is a great place to go Plymouth, particularly in summer. Yeah. Uh, but we also have Coolidge house in Washington where our senators come and learn about Coolidge it's and where we have place. events relating to Coolidge. <clears throat> yeah. So, so these senators over time have mounted now we, there are more than 500 senators and Senator alumni. And that program um, is, is a way of keeping kids interested in philosophy, in the values of, uh, for which Coolidge stood, um, which is our our charter, um, and in providing some of the education that high schools might not be providing.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if any other presidential foundations do as much to educate the rising generation about.
1: Oh, the, the Reagan president. Foundation probably does, about or groups the, related, right? Young perhaps,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we work with the Reagan Foundation on, uh, but it's a program we co sponsor with them to educate young people about presidents and their leadership styles it's not specifically focused on Reagan they have probably other programs that do that and they have the beautiful library in, have, in California we,
1: and we would which, love to partner with them we have not yet we have but not. I,
0: I think what you're doing is filling a great void in terms of educating the rising generation about the ideas that Coolidge stood for
1: at Coolidge Foundation, we do, I suppose, work on communication. That is, we have a debate program. So kids argue for Coolidge, and they argue against him, and they get prizes. And this year they're debating, for example, whether Coolidge should be in the top 10 instead of in the 20s in ranks among presidents. That's an exciting topic. But, but I believe um, personally, which is why I give my life to the Coolidge Foundation, that the principles should not be... Uh, doctored to make them more palatable or secondary to the communication effort. The principles matter more than the communication. I believe if you build a good mousetrap, people will come. I've been proven wrong a million times. (laughs) The world will be at your door. I still believe it. You've got to have the argument for, say, lower taxes or for faith, which Coolidge cared about, and not just say, well, I got to be a good communicator because television people teach us, oh, it's all about the communication Communication is important, but it's secondary to the soundness of ideas.
0: Well, you, you, since you mentioned faith, one of Coolidge's speeches that's my favorite was his oration on the 150th anniversary of July 4th, Independence Day, a speech I think he gave in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a remarkable speech I think every high school student should read in their civics class. Uh, but in that speech, Coolidge talked a lot about kind of the religious underpinnings of the American experiment and of the founders views. Uh, he says something in there uh, which I've kind of wondered the source of it, but he mentions that uh, Thomas Jefferson had commented, like maybe written about the fact that most of what he had learned about democracy and in American institutions of, of uh, limited of, of democracy uh, he learned at church meetings.
1: Yes, and I don't know the answer to that. Okay, Although was... we do have Coolidge scholars such as William Pettinger who will, will come back at, at our foundation. I am very eager to see Coolidge's notes in the preparation yeah. for this speech, which I don't know um, if they exist or where they are. But Coolidge said in that speech if, uh, the, you know about the declaration, and he, he moved words around. He knew European languages. He liked inflected languages. About the declaration, there's something that's exceedingly restful. If all men are equal, that is final. No progress can be made from that. This was his way of saying we don't need a giant progressive change in our culture to learn to honor where we still fail to human and civil rights. He also said uh, not there, um, but uh, around personal rights and property rights are about the same thing. Which yeah. I like very much. What's interesting about that speech is you see how far can a president go on faith, uh, on the faith topic. That speech was for the Fourth of July. That Fourth of July was the anniversary. It was important. Uh, Coolidge was born on Fourth of July. It's yes. his birthday. Coolidge gave that speech on July five. Why? Because July four was Sunday.
0: Ah. So that tells
1: you <laughs> it, it, it all. He he said, "Leave space for things of the spirit." he was not um, a showily pious man. He had a quiet piety, uh, but he was not impious. He was very respectful. uh, And I I think he's a good model for that. I I would like to say he was the descendant of Edmund Burke, but I don't find much evidence that he read Burke Mm -hmm. uh, very intensely. I find it was in his classes. Um, But let's just say he channeled Burke. For example, when, Burke Burke gave a very famous speech at Bristol. Now you're testing my memory, where he basically said, I was elected from here, but I represent all of Britain. I'm not your ambassador.
0: The parliament. Uh,
1: yeah. I'm not your ambassador. I'm Ascension being voting what's good for the polity. And, and Bristol voted Burke out. Coolidge had a similar moment because there was a flood uh, in the Mississippi of the great flood of 1927, flood of the Mississippi. Coolidge didn't go as president. And that was questionable. Think of President Bush with Katrina. Uh, it was questioned and Coolidge didn't go because he wasn't sure a president should jump in there. Mm. Uh, he's not commander in chief at home. And Senator Thaddeus Caraway said, "Well, if there were a flood in Vermont, he would go. He's from Vermont." And then, uh, this is in the film, yeah. kind of divine retribution. There was a flood in Vermont that very year, and Coolidge didn't go. What a pol- what politician would not fight for his original constituency, his home, but Coolidge uh, understood that he-, he didn't want to show favoritism. Uh, and one Vermonter commented in the paper, he can't do for his own what he didn't do for others. So that's Coolidge's, I think of it as his Burke moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah. I am waiting for the discovery of Coolidge's college essay on Edmund Burke. Please buy it on eBay <laughs> if you find it. And I will buy it from you as long as the Coolidge foundation can afford that.
0: <laughs> well, Amity, uh, there's a rumor that you're working on another book. I think the working title is The Silent Majority. I don't know if this is true. That sounds good. I would like to know what what book project you may have in the works.
1: I do regret not naming um, Great Society Silent Majority. Why? Silent Majority, Great Society is about the 60s, the period of the Great Society and new history. Um, Silent Majority was a phrase Richard Nixon used. And I thought it would be confusing. It would sound like I was...
0: Oh, a book on Nixon. A book or, on Nixon. Yeah, I was so wrong. That was...
1: I should have called the book Silent Majority and explained in yeah. the intro that this okay. phrase has a long... But I am working, uh, and I may yet write Silent Majority. I'm working on two books. One is a uh, History of the Gilded Age.
0: Oh, wonderful. And the enterprise that's, of that period. Yeah.
1: Um, and that's the government needed. and progressivism, at, but it won't be called Gilded Age because, again, that's sort of an ironic title. I mean, I'm not saying – I wouldn't go along with the idea that the age was gilded, i.e. artificially yeah. rich. Um, it was a genuine power, uh, uh, the economy in that period, because of the people behind it. Yeah. Um, and I'm also writing a short history of the 20th century economy for college students, Uh um, that basically says this was a gift don't take the economy as a given. The economy is a fragile animal, as in the great depression period when when recovery stayed away for ten years, and what 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 made the economy give us these gifts in each decade? And I'm taking counsel on how to format that, Roger.
0: Oh, so that'll cover the whole century, basically. But that
1: should be short.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that could be a great resource for young people. So yeah, when like, that comes out, we'll want to use it in our programs.
1: Decade by decade, yeah. hero by hero.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, obviously, very different responses at different times by government to economic upheaval or crises. And uh, wonderful. Uh, you had a You've had a distinguished career in journalism. You worked... The Wall Street Journal on the editorial board there. You've written for lots of publications, Bloomberg, uh, Forbes. Uh, you, you freelance and submit places elsewhere. Uh, I'd like to just touch on your journalism career because many of our alumni are in journalism careers or, or aspire to go into journalism careers. I don't know if you can offer general advice to them, but uh, did you, you really enjoy that part of your career? Was, well,
1: well, of course I did. Because um, it was in
0: the US and in Europe, right? Yeah,
1: I was at The Wall Street Journal seventeen years. I was yeah. at the Financial Times five years. I was at the Bloomberg right. at um, five years too. So what I recommend is get skills. Journalism is sort of the means, but you need the skills. So learn accounting, learn economics, learn a foreign language, learn podcast technology. The, the, those things, and never count on journalism to be a career. It isn't. Most of the time, it, 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 it's a medium that's changing so fast that jobs go away. So get skills. I think uh, one thing that that helped me a lot was I learned German, so I worked as a foreign correspondent, and that gave me a, a door to go through into Germany. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew Russian. Really, I wish I knew better French. I wish today I knew Spanish. Those things are important. I wish today I knew national accounts and accounting. And I wish I I would, I'm not saying I'm regretful, but things, I'm mentioning things that would be useful. It would have been very helpful to have a law degree. Uh, Law degrees are expensive. So you go to get a law degree and then you don't practice. It seems uh, an inefficiency. But but law informs life. We you know, the best way to teach history is through what happened with laws and trials. David Petruccio is working on a book, and I thought that's a good idea to tell the 20th century through the trials like the Scopes trial. Uh, the Schecter trial. Or the Schechter trial. We didn't get to that. <laughs> no, we can come back. Uh, but I don't think journalism alone is really a profession, and that's a little offensive to say that we train journalists. But I, I always uh, counsel: max out the skills. Even yeah. become a veterinarian, you can be the greatest animal writer. <laughs> some of true. the time, also. Oh,
0: that's excellent advice. Also,
1: writing there are years when when one writes poorly, and years when one is a better writer. That has to do with circumstance, assets, health. Some years it's better to be fallow as a writer and to just practice a trade. I think of the the writer Louis Auchincloss, who his day job was Mm. trust in the States Mm. as a a lawyer. Inspiration comes from daily life, and daily life sometimes is more than teaching. It might be as a a doctor or a lawyer or, I don't know, an oil worker in the field on a rig. The journalism is just you know is just there some of the time they're writing and and saying i'm a writer and i write also causes one to ask oneself is one gifted enough to be called oneself a writer i always feel sorry for people who say i'm a writer cuz then they're wondering when they say am i really gifted well uh, writing is just like building a house some are better than others at building houses it takes practice some are truly genius architects others are just adequate adequate is good enough but you can't uh, sort of delve into yourself and wonder whether you can write that's that's a fool's errand
0: well that's great advice i mean we we do require our journalism students to take economics and we encourage them to learn statistics of course in statistics finance accounting you've added to that list with they're, foreign they're, languages being so important
1: i'm sorry to drill down speaking, no, that's, but they're afraid of that cuz mm-hmm. guess what in statistics they might get a C and they've told themselves they're a writer right they're human so take statistics in a school where you'll be less intimidated in the county college, in night school, you know, buy a course on the Internet. Take it three times. It won't kill you to take it three times. I'm not the best in math, so I won't take math. That That's the wrong. Take it in yeah. a way that you're comfortable with. It won't humiliate you so much that you drop it. Yeah. And young people are, we, it's our fault. We funnel them into their comparative advantage. She's a writer, he's a writer and let them drop off too early in the basics.
0: Yeah. I used, we used to collect statements by very successful journalists who said things like, including a major network anchor who said, I really regret I never took economics. And, uh, I, I think your advice to young journalists is is so important and hopefully they're listening and And we'll do that, take these other courses, learn other things.
1: A big part of my economic school was the Wall Street Journal. It's sort of like – Yeah,
0: you learn while doing. You think
1: of um, Moby Dick Whaling was my Yale College and my Harvard. (laughs) Well, the Wall Street Journal was my Yale College and my Harvard for for econ. But also going overseas. If if you go to a place where the money doesn't work, you begin to understand monetary. Mm -hmm. That would be a communist place, Venezuela – you know now, or you know, a yeah. war zone Ukraine, money doesn't work. That will explain a lot to you. So the the travel broadens, but only uh, if you prepare for the travel and think about what you're watching. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I had the great privilege of sharing the platform when you were awarded a Bradley Prize. Uh, you've been given the Bastiat Prize, which is a great recognition of your writing. It's really remarkable what you've done in your career, Amity. Uh, I know we're running out of time. I did bring, uh, some of your books here, the forgotten man, which I hope people will still buy and read. I think it's sold over 250,000 copies Uh, your biography on Coolidge, which has also been turned into a graphic, a, a graphic biography. that was a bestseller, uh, and your great society book. Uh, so all, all, uh, among the four bestsellers you've written. Uh, so, uh you're helping provide important history that too often isn't being taught in our schools uh, a book on the gilded age is very much needed so i can't wait till i see that i'm taking but,
1: submissions for a Happy evocative title. Okay. Uh, 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 please uh, let me know at the Coolidge Foundation. But, uh, but you know, part of what we're also doing, and Roger and I both do this, he sat with me at the Bradley Prize. Yes. We, we we're the same class, right? Is build institutions as uh, alternates to other institutions. Not one thing about TFAS is you, you don't carpet others. Right. You're not an anti institution, you're a pro institution you're letting young people pick, uh, and that's pretty rare, so I compliment right back at
0: you. Well, thank you, Amity. Uh, It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Congratulations on the great work of the Coolidge Foundation, this fabulous two-day conference you've put together at the Library of Congress, and your new documentary. Uh, You can count on us doing all we can at the Fund for American Studies to promote that, to get our students to watch that, and to learn about a great president. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reen, and until next time, show courage in things large and small.